Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur, investor and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. This week's episode is with Katie Marash, partner at Jamjar Investments. Jamjar is the former Innocent Smoothie founder's VC fund, and one of the leading consumer investors in the UK, having backed companies like Oatly, Babylon, Papier, Many Pets, Lick, and Tails.com. This is a great episode, so let's get started. Hi, Katie. Welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. So, Katie, could you just start by giving a very high level of what Jamjar is? Jamjar is the originally Three Innocent Drinks Founders Fund. We invest purely in consumer brands, early stage. We've just raised our first institutional fund of 100 million. So prior to that, we were the Innocent Founders Private Cash. And there's four of us that are partners here, including them. That's really exciting. And you've backed some amazing companies. So how did you get into venture capital? So I grew up in Manchester, then went to Oxford University. When I was there, I heard James Kahn, who at the time was on The Dragon's Den, doing a talk about his career. It was very refreshing kind of hearing from him. He'd left school after his GCSEs, no qualifications beyond that. And, you know, he literally started a business from a broom closet with three credit cards of debt. Um, So he didn't have any external capital. And he'd gone on to make hundreds of millions. Um, and had then launched a private equity firm. Anyway, I was just very inspired by his kind of entrepreneurial spirit and basically how he'd managed to make something out of nothing. And I approached him at the end and asked for an internship, which I got. So then I moved down to London, did the internship. The end of that, I got my boss's job in the private equity firm. My boss got promoted. And it was a bit of a baptism of fire. So I started my career managing his personal, what turned out to be consumer angel investments, um, some of which were Dragon's Den, some of which weren't. So I worked for him for a few years in his private equity firm. So it was basically an associate role alongside the management of the portfolio. And then I left there after helping him with a, a few businesses to join the BBC. So there was a break in the middle where I kind of figured out what I wanted to do, but joined the BBC on a trainee scheme trained as a journalist and in production they then offered me a job on the one show which I took so then I was a researcher on the one show then I yeah moved around a bit within the BBC realized it wasn't for me missed the commercial world then joined Innocent Drinks on the commercial team where I met the three innocent founders who were angel investing at the time and that linked to my background originally and got chatting to one of them and within a few weeks of that conversation started double hatting with my role and looking after their investments at the same time and 2013 they sold to coke north of half a billion exit suddenly had a lot more time and cash to do what they wanted and basically we're going to leave and said we'd love you to come with us and so day one after leaving innocent we launched jam jar properly and here we are 10 years later 
that's brilliant. So you're you're another journalist turned VC, which is which are seemingly interchangeable careers. Thinking about the others that are out there in the in the ecosystem, but I wonder um, what's been your training as a VC, and how do you how do you feel your 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 sort of training up until now has has taught you to, to pick those outlier companies. Well, I think all my experiences weirdly have been relevant. I mean, the obviously the start, the kind of baptism of fire at the beginning, where you know I was looking after these businesses, sitting on boards you know, looking at them from an investment perspective in a kind of formal private equity context, which is typically a much later stage investment than venture capital, but at the same time managing these very early products with James. That was great training. It was like really jumping in right at the deep end. And yeah, then going on to work with him on different businesses and kind of troubleshooting them also gives you an insight into operational challenges. The BBC was a great way of just you know, being a really strong generalist in terms of seeing a lot of different types of information, being a potentially good judge of character, asking the right questions. Yeah, part of my job was to write the questions for guests. So you're having to read their biographies, get a real sense of them, then have a chat with them, get them to open up, understand what to ask them that's going to be interesting and kind of, you know, relax them and get get the information across that's relevant. So actually that weirdly has a lot in common with VC. Then joining Innocent, I was in a data science role because my degree was very, it's a very unusual degree, but we won't go into that. But a big part of it was statistics. So just the strong analysis of data, like, you know, all day doing data at Innocent is really relevant as well to VC. So that kind of analysis. And then, you know, for the last 10 years being at Jamjar, just that focus, I think, on the consumer segment, you just start to see patterns, you start to you start to spot things. Yeah, I think there's been instinct there from very early, and then that's kind of evolved with experience over time. It sounds like, Katie, you've got a good mix of the art and the science when looking at companies. What's the one thing that for you is now a red flag that maybe wasn't at the beginning of your career? That's such a good question. It's really hard to say because the truth is there's lots of exceptions to lots of rules and everyone's different and every business is different, even though there are patterns, as I said. But there's more than one way to swing a cat. So, you know, two great entrepreneurs can act, can have completely different profiles and you're learning to spot the patterns and, you know, there's similarities within a certain context. So this, these type of founders or people that over-index on this, but it doesn't mean that everyone who's successful has to over-index on that. And equally, you know, gaps, every team has gaps. So you're trying to constantly kind of qualify how, what, how, what the weighting that you give to gaps and strengths. But to answer your question, what is a red flag now? There was a founder that we backed that from quite early on, it seemed like he was being dishonest. But we the flip side of that was that he was a brilliant salesman. And that was an example where we did the deal, kind of knowing his strengths and weaknesses. And actually his weakness really overrode the strength because it was very difficult to trust him and it was it was difficult for anyone to trust him. So I think dishonesty is a red flag. Even though it can come with strengths, is the truth in terms of you know in some contexts you can be 
really strong communicator. I think that's really interesting that um, yeah, you do you do make excuses for why you, why you can overlook a you know a big negative in someone, and, and I guess the you know, the flip even to that is that you know maybe there's another dishonest founder who's an amazing salesman or who who does turn out to be a very successful founder. So as you say, like there are so few rules. <laughs> Weirdly, it wasn't that he wasn't successful. He was actually very successful. It, it wasn't that. We just regretted it. It wasn't... It, we were making excuses as to why he was being dishonest, you know, oh, he's just so desperate for this and he just really wants that. And they are all reasons why he was dishonest, but it kind of didn't take away from his dishonesty and he was... That didn't change and that felt at odds with our approach and transparency. That's very interesting. It's like almost maintaining integrity even in the face of a great opportunity but i'm yeah re- really interested in kind of mo- moving away from what what makes a good vc just interested to hear about how you guys think about competition so i'm just wondering whether you have a sort of framework for looking at competition or or how you get comfortable that you're actually backing um, a company that can become a category leader rather than just kind of one amongst the noise yeah well I think you said it there that we're looking for category leaders in terms of the approach I suppose you need to understand size of market which I remember someone once said to me quite early in my career if you have to think about it too much the market's probably not big enough so really that shouldn't take too long it's the reality sometimes there's nuances but market size then yeah who else is in the market competition wise and obviously that's regions are very relevant to that in terms of U.S competitors in some instances are less relevant to Europe which is we focus on Europe but in some instances that's not the case so we definitely we always do a competitive landscape review when we're looking at a space or a business at a late stage and if we kind of earmark the space is interesting we'll you know meet a host of businesses in the space at different sizes if it's more opportunistic so there's a specific business that we're interested in doing and we need to understand the competitive landscape we'll probably meet a few to get a sense if we have time but if not we at least want to be aware of what's going on and then it's about understanding the kind of maturity of the market and barriers to entry and then you're kind of contexting all of that with the business in front of you and their idea and that team so like most of you see it's a mix of art and science I think yeah, it's interesting because I think I've heard some other VCs talk about market size slightly differently, that like they've massively underestimated what the market size is. And I think, yeah, I mean, something like Uber or Airbnb, they've sort of created the markets as well. It's, it's often so difficult. Is there anything when, when you do get to that question of trying to quantify, how do you go about it? I mean, is it mintel reports and things like that or do you guys have a different approach and try and like model out your own your own i think what you just said is a really good point and i remember once reading that steve Jobs said about the first ipod that if he would have done a market analysis everyone he would have looked at the mp3 market and said no one wants this so yeah there's always nuances and things that are relevant to different contexts but i think the key thing is which market are you looking at so for example, we've, we've actually closed a deal yesterday that it's a completely new category. So 
in terms of market analysis, there are comparables, but the category itself doesn't exist yet. So then you're making projections about a potential new market. In other instances, the market isn't what you think it is. So I remember I once spoke to a guy that ran a cruise business and I said to him, what's your biggest competition? And he said, it's motorbikes, which isn't what you think, but because it's discretionary spend. So at that level, the customers on the cruise are thinking, do I want to buy a motorbike or do I want to go on a cruise? And that's not to say that the motorbike, the motorbike market is directly relevant, but I think you've got to ask the right question of what market you're looking at and what competition you're looking at in the first place. And obviously, if the market doesn't exist, then you've got to take a view. I think the plot even thickens from there because I think, you know, sometimes you could you could find a market that's actually quite small, but maybe it's a billion globally. But, you know, if you build a, if you're building a company that has the most insane product market fit and captures all of that, you've got a massive business. Yeah. I mean, I think in terms of penetration, the proxy that we use, like if someone's assuming that they're going to get more than 5% penetration, we probably don't believe them. Not because we don't want to believe them and not because they necessarily won't get that penetration, but it's very unlikely. So I suppose as a kind of rule of thumb, you want to believe that 5% of a market penetration is big enough. And that's kind of at the toppy end, like ideally, you know, 2% max, 1% is even better, like 0.2% is even better. So it's, it's all contextualized. But there are businesses that get to really, really high monopolies in a market. But I suppose they're the exception. And I think it is true that in most instances, you'd at least want a decent sized business without them having to achieve that level of penetration but even what a decent sized business is varies from vc to vc like our hurdle for an exit is we have to believe that a business can get to at least a 250 million pound enterprise value at exit you know there's a lot of vcs now they're looking for billions and like billions plural like i was talking to a friend recently they're like you know we need three billion exits any business has to be able to have the potential in our minds to get to 3 billion otherwise it's not it doesn't move the dial for the fund so it's it's not worth it and i think it's interesting to it's one of those things you don't necessarily think about as a founder but contextualizing the return profile of a fund versus the size of fund they've raised is relevant and the stake sizes that they need but i can imagine it was very frustrating for founders because it's like you know you can build an incredible business at a billion dollars and that everyone actually would be very pleased with that. And they're not thinking about that. They're just like, you know, we need to believe it can get to this. Yeah, I think it's a great message for founders. They need to understand that those those dynamics that are going through the the VC's head. One thing that Hector just said there was that you can build maybe a billion dollar business, but then there are opportunities to go beyond that. And like, we look at it, particularly with UK fintech, we've seen companies go very hard after a vertical, and then be really amazing at going horizontal. I think so. Revolut is the sort of the prime example of that with FX and now offering seemingly every financial product. As an early stage investor, what do you think founders should do? Should they communicate that they can go horizontal in the future, or should they just show that they're really focused on the first problem? And how do you try and? be lenient with how they're trying to pitch it as we're focused but we've also got all these other things that we can do in the future and how sort of sympathetic are you to founders trying to manage that tightrope of focus versus 
spin out opportunities? We definitely value focus, as in Jamjar specifically. I think probably many other VCs do as well, but we specifically highly value focus. And that's that's from experience as much as anything, like keep the main thing the main thing. A streamlined team gets you so far. It's like when you're starting up, you're a little boat. You know, there's lots of cruise liners and there's all these other big ships in the sea. And as a little boat, it's like if you're spreading your three-man team thin and everyone's trying to go in different directions how on earth are you ever going to cross the sea like just that focus of like this is what we're going to do and as you evolve you can do all these marvelous things you can add on masts and you can go here and you can go there and you can you know become a submarine whatever you want but a hundred percent we value focus a slide on the end on we could do this we could do that it's not going to count against you but a pitch that is incorporating trying to do too much is definitely off-putting because just on a practical basis it's unfortunately less likely that the team will be able to achieve what they want when they're splitting resources to try and do lots of different things and another really good example is Innocent I mean yes a very successful case study but in the years from Innocent being founded to Innocent exiting Red Bull as a comparison, they had one drink. Red Bull sells Red Bull. Innocent had, you know, tens of SKUs. Red Bull became a bigger business from that one SKU. And it's just a really good example of you don't always need to do loads of things. And sometimes the more powerful thing is to just do one thing and like milk that thing for all it's worth. So we value focus and simplicity of message. Yeah, I really like that Red Bull Innocent comparison. I hadn't, hadn't thought about that. And I, I suppose, I mean, one of the things that I sometimes advise our portfolio to do is to focus on their particular, you know, what, whatever it is they set out to do initially. And then maybe just before Series A or maybe just after Series A, sometime around then, just to run some experiments in like a new product or a new geography or something, just not put a whole lot of resource into it, but just to show that there is this, whole other massive thing that we can do so that it's not just a slide at the back of the deck but it's actually like we've started to experiment because i think one of the things that we've definitely seen is common between a lot of the most successful founders is is their ability to experiment and how effectively they experiment so yeah so we do we talk a bit about that yeah that's really interesting and definitely innovation is a key element of entrepreneurship but i think it's about the importance that you give to that in a pitch and that in your baseline plan because experimentation is one thing and r&d but you still want a core business that kind of affords you the ability to do that experimentation and the ideal growth is built on top of strong foundations it's not a pivot you can have successful pivots but it's not the ideal in terms of the fastest way to grow is to build and therefore you need a strong foundation. So being clear what your foundation is, that's not to say don't experiment at certain points in time, but you know the reality is when you're pitching a business anyway, the investor is only ever going to know a slice of the business, however big that slice is and however broad it is. How on earth can an investor know the business in the same way as you who's in it day to day and been running it for a year plus typically? So Because of that, it's about prioritising what you tell investors and the story that you're giving them. I think that's what we're talking about here, isn't it? It's like 
staying focused with the pitch. It's great to have all these other things that you can do and you can be a really good experimenter, but try and stay focused on the pitch. But we also at fault as investors of kind of questioning founders on like ARPU and annual revenue per user for, for those listening. You know, you know, everyone hears about ARPU, you got how are you going to increase that? And then, you know, they'll have one investor call where someone asks that. So then they go away and create a whole document about how they're going to increase ARPU. And then they go to the next investor and, the, and they just go, stay focused on the core business. I don't want to hear about that stuff yet. Like, it's so hard for founders to get the balance right, isn't it? It is hard. And also different investors value different things. And that's even within one venture house. Like, you know, there might be different partners that care about different things. So I think it is hard for founders. And I think it shows how prepared you have to be for a fundraise because you potentially need all manner of materials. The best thing to do, if possible, I think, is to upfront prepare a full breadth of materials. And then that allows you to keep the speed and pace. And then as and when people ask for specific things, you have them to hand. You don't have to share everything with everyone. But it is inevitable that you are going to get different requests from different people. Very interesting and hopefully valuable for listeners to hear about what, what investors want to want to see. And uh, I guess the outcome is that <laughs> eventually they're going to have to show everything if they speak to enough investors. But um, just kind of zooming out of that conversation a little bit, I would love to hear kind of what you're seeing in the consumer space and any any trends that you're excited about. I mean, what, what are the what are the big new things that you're excited about in consumer? I mean, I think there's areas that are probably a bit boring to mention, but the reality is that they are really interesting because we're still just scratching the surface, for example, of like, you know, meat replacements, dairy replacements. You know, we've been talking about this for months, if not years, but we're still right at the beginning of that journey in terms of what can be grown in the lab, the taste of things. Like, that is a huge, huge area of interest. And that is going to be part of the future of mankind, it feels. And, you know, I remember once hearing the Uber founder, he started Uber Eats because he thought, what else do people do every day, a few times a day, apart from travel, eat? It's like, there's not, there's not many things. That's what I mean before as well about size of market. It's like, you don't even have to think about that in terms of the potential size of market. It's absolutely enormous. So that's a really interesting area. Within fintech, I think mortgages, we're right at the beginning. Like, it's really interesting us focusing on consumer in terms of there's a kind of common senseness to to consumer that sometimes maybe isn't there in more B2B type analysis. But within the context of consumer, it's like if you just on the back of a handkerchief kind of list down in a human's lifetime, what are their biggest spends? Mortgage is right up there. And it's something that happens in many cases repeatedly across a lifetime. It's just a huge area of spend that we're still really at the beginning in terms of the digitization of that. And I mean that behind the scenes as well as the consumer experience. Like, you know, there's already a few startups in the space and, you know, we've backed Gen Home and MCube, which are a couple of them. But I think there's huge potential in that space and it's an enormous market. Just on that point, we kind of touched on it earlier with talking about judge a character, but I think understanding people is an extension of what you're, what you're just speaking about there and being able to do kind of back of envelope calculations on whether the need is there so yeah I, th- I think it's a really I think it's a really important point but yeah I mean the mortgages stuff fascinating what, what's going to happen what's going to happen to mortgages I think the back end of mortgages will increasingly become streamlined digitally like if you look at the systems that 
the mortgage industry is using. They're, li they're literally anarchic and they're all segmented. They don't flow into each other and there's no sharing of data. It's actually madness. So I think at that end, there'll be a lot of change. And then at the front end, the way that people get a mortgage, I think, will completely change. As in, you would expect the process to be entirely digital, um, at least as an option for people. If you just look at even like millennials uh, sort of happy to do it a bit the old way. Uh, well, Gen Z, when they come through to get their mortgages, there's no way they're going to pick up a phone and call a mortgage advisor. Just, they're just not. They're going to download an app and they're going to go, bang, 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 there's my mortgage in principle. It's already integrated with the platform that I found the thing on and everything. You know, it's going to change so much. I completely agree. Seen disruption at the beginning stage in terms of how you find a house, but there's going to be more and more disruption there as well. And in terms of like how you find what you pay, what you find, whether you can buy in the first place, you know, that's we see so many startups trying to solve the problem of home ownership, but that is a real problem for people. Yeah, it's also a really difficult one to solve because. There are so many different ways to get a mortgage now, whether it be equity release from your parents, a loan from your parents, who don't have parents with money, who can't do that sort of thing. Then you've got first time buyers and you've got people who bought something first time, but actually they need a mortgage. Like it's so complicated. There isn't really a one size fits all. And we, we looked at a load of companies at my last fund and one of the partners would go, oh, I'd use that. And then another partner would go, I'd never use that. <laughs> it's like there's no continuous parity on what who would use what. And that's tricky. Yeah, I mean, the going back to the question as well of trends, as you can see, we're, we're pretty separate within consumers. So there's lots of different trends we track. But, you know, the humanization of pets is a really interesting trend. We're right at the beginning of that as well in terms of, you know, I was looking at a really interesting business the other day that's doing pet vitamins. It's like pet wearables. Like people spend so much on their pets. There's an emotional connection to pets that can be really underestimated. Yeah, one of the businesses we've backed in the past was Tails.com. And I remember when we did due diligence on it, I spoke to the CEO of Pets at Home. And I was like, you know, who do you think the demographic is for this kind of thing? It's personalized pet food. And he was like, listen, Pets at Home, we asked two things in terms of could they be a potential customer of pets at home? And it's nothing to do with income. It's nothing to do with background. Number one, do they say goodnight to their pet before bed? Number two, do they sign their Christmas card from their pet? That says it all in terms of the way people feel about their pets. And yeah, I think there's lots of interesting pet opportunities as well. Digitalization of health. I mean, loads of stuff in that. There, there's kind of an inter interesting common thread between all, all of that, which is slightly that it's kind of like the market's been there for a long time but it's so often a timing issue right like 10 years ago maybe a few people bought christmas presents for their pets or bought a house for their pet i don't know you know it's getting more and more extreme but then it gets into the into the mainstream and and then you know just before that hopefully you want to jump on as a vc onto the companies who are going to be kind of leading leading that category so, I mean, it's so often a, a timing issue as well. I mean, so many great businesses founded by great people failed because they were five, ten years too early. Oh, yeah. Timing timing is incredibly important. It's one of our key criteria that we look at. I think we're all asking the same question. Who's doing mortgages for pets? <laughs> exactly.
the other thing I'm particularly interested in in, in consumer is go to market and how people market their product. And I wonder what some of the clever, maybe hacky, maybe scalable ways that, that you've seen consumer brands reaching the mass market and lots of customers. I mean, it's probably really obvious, but like having an omni-channel approach, I think it's more and more the norm, but it's still underestimated. Just like leafleting, it can be actually really cheap. Sampling, not always possible depending on how digital the business is, but can be really cheap. Recommend a friend, such an obvious, like been around forever strategy, but you wouldn't, that is such a low hanging fruit for people to try. And it's amazing how often it's just not tried for a very long time. And sometimes it doesn't work, but a lot of the time it does. And interestingly, if you have a business people are passionate about, as long as there's not kind of privacy issues for whatever reason, it works particularly well because people want to tell their friends about it and encouraging them to do so can just be really useful. Funnily enough, like one of our businesses was really clever about Trustpilot. So they've kind of, they found product market fit. They were confident in the product, but even then they were very careful. They always asked for a review. And when it was a positive review, they would then say, do you want to upload this to Trustpilot? And it was like a one click thing. And as a result, they got loads and loads of really positive reviews on Trustpilot, which then was just really useful for them when people Googled them and they were, it wasn't just Trustpilot, but they were very, very conscious of positive reviews, even from a small base. And that really helped them, I think, to get noticed and it helped conversion. And it was free, as in it was just kind of using the customers that they already had better. That's super smart approach and it's using the tools available to you. It also points to the problems with something like Trustpilot, where you go on Trustpilot and you come across a product that you think, this isn't that good. It's got like five-star reviews. And like someone's doing something. But it's amazing how often founders aren't conscious of what's publicly out there about them when they're raising. Like, you know, sometimes you'll see these terrible product reviews, which in some instances can't be helped, especially at an early stage, because you're going to get problems. But at the same time, sometimes it's just not managed well at all. I think it's good to be conscious of it for consumers and also for investors. Definitely. We're starting to see more kind of trust pilot comparisons and NPS scores and things like that come into founders decks as they they maybe do become a little bit more aware of it but it's it's still something that some founders have a bit of a blind spot towards it's a really funny one to say but the name of the business is a really untapped marketing resource that people don't really think about but it's a free thing to name your business and if you get it right it can be a gift that keeps on giving for the rest of a business's life. Like it can be the kind of tone, brand, like the the kind of ethos of the entire business can be in the name. And it's I think of it as a piece of free marketing and people don't use it. But like how memorable is it? How relevant is it? How how easy is it to use in isolation? Like, you know, when you look at some of the best ad campaigns, it's like Nike, just their tick. Like, just the simplicity of marketing, I think if you can really have what you do spend money on being efficient, you can save a lot of money. Like, we had Facebook in yesterday, and they were saying to us that you wouldn't believe how 
little effort is put into just art direction of campaigns. So founders will say like, oh, we've tried this, it didn't work. And from Facebook's perspective, they didn't try it because they did one picture with a few variations of messaging. And they're like, like that's not really trying Facebook. <laughs> As in, there's an infinite amount of things one could try, but kind of understanding that and really what you're testing in terms of imagery and message is really important because I think sometimes the adverts are just crap and so it's like that's it's not really a trial if you're trying a crap advert. In case you just on that maybe as a consumer investor like how important is it that that happens to you guys as well because as investors you've got to communicate what this business is internally to other people if they can't communicate it to you as an investor presumably you feel a little bit concerned that they can't communicate it to their target audience so like how important is that piece when you're considering investment you're like oh the market's going to get this straight away because we get it straight away yeah no it's really important it's one of our criteria on teams is it's around the ability to communicate what you're doing i mean just in the very basic sense the most common thing you'll see missed out of a pitch deck is what it is <laughs> like people will just start off with the market size and how they're doing it and but it's like just what is it in a very simple way and sometimes you can read a whole deck and not know what it is like it's, it's very common for me I'll google the business and you know that little sentence that first comes up on on the google search that often is much more useful than the whole of their deck to just like understand what it is and sometimes it's not because it's a really difficult thing to communicate and that's part of the challenge but the ability to communicate to your customers and investors is definitely very important. It's been amazing having you on and we've learned we've learned so much about being a good investor, what we're looking for, what we're looking for in startups, in founders, in their approach to go to market. And, and we've had a pretty far reaching discussion and a couple of sort of deep dives into certain areas. So it's been really, really fascinating um, speaking to you. And we um, always like to play a game with our guests and we ask them who they would ask to a dinner party. So who would your three dinner party guests be? It's a very funny mix, but I would have Rasputin because I've always been fascinated by his charm and ability to completely change social class from literally being a peasant in Siberia to infiltrate the upper aristocracy of Russia. I just think that is amazing. And the amount of rumours there were around his magical ability and, you know, he healed the Tsar's son and he single-handedly potentially changed the course of history because Russia is, as we can still see today, there's such influence of Russia. So I think he would be a fascinating guest. My next guest would be Moses from the Bible because the ability to talk to God directly, his spiritual enlightenment so I think I would have him and my final guess this is the hardest one maybe like the Lululemon founder yeah someone I haven't met before that's just that I'm just interested to hear from well it's definitely three original answers which is great so three points there well awesome Katie thank you so much for coming on and telling us your right unicorn story and yeah as had said there's loads of insight in there about how founders should be approaching investors and thinking about what you're thinking about and um, so really really helpful and yeah thanks again for coming on thanks so much thanks so much Katie, for coming on that's it for this week thanks very much for listening to stay up to date with the latest episodes please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform 
We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.